Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The first time I got shot, I was 15 years old, standing on the corner in my old neighborhood, running inventory through my small business. <laughs> one of my competitors was mad because I was running a buy one, get one free sale he didn't like. So he decided to ride by and started shooting. So I started running. I ran down through this alley and I jumped over this fence. I know what y'all thinking, Miss Pat, your big butt didn't jump over no fence. <laughs> you right, I ran clean damn through that fence. That is none other than funny woman Patricia Miss Pat Williams. She's made you laugh on NBC's Last Comic Standing, on Comedy Central, and at the raucous Uptown Comedy Club in her native Atlanta. But Miss Pat comes from a life of heartbreak, spanning hunger, sexual abuse, teen pregnancy, and a first-hand role in America's crack epidemic. She's been to hell and back. How did she turn it all around? Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of our friends at Elwood Thompson's, Virginia's best market, hands down, at the top of Carytown, the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name. I love Indian Wednesdays. I love the breakfast buffet. The gluten-free selection at the bakery for my sister-in-law. Gosh, that place rocks. Visit them at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Indianapolis, where she now lives, is Ms. Pat. That would be Patricia Williams. She goes by Ms. Pat. It's her stage name. The book is out. It's called Rabbit, the Autobiography of Ms. Pat, which you absolutely must pick up. It's both heartbreaking and hilarious. Uh, Roseanne Barr said, not only is Ms. Pat funny as hell, she also understands how comedy is the most powerful weapon on earth against sorrow and inequity. How are you today? I'm just fine. How you doing? I'm all right. So what happened? You you were supposed to open for Sinbad last night. And like I said, it's news to me that Sinbad's even alive. No, no, no. I had it wrong. I went to the show. <laughs> so he My is friend. alive. He is alive indeed. Yeah, he's alive. I wasn't. I wish I was opening for him. No, I went. I caught him at the Morty's Comedy Joint here in Indianapolis. He was he was awesome. Wow. Uh, I want to, you know, in reading this book, which the likes of Mark Marin and Kirkus Reviews and all over the place, I mean, you've been getting a lot of praise uh, for Rabbit, and it was our mutual bookseller, Fountain Bookstore, who recommended it to me. Is it an out-of-body experience for you to read these things? I mean, I know you you wrote it with the help of um, Janine Amber, but when it's all down on paper and you look at your your life in a kind of a 2D format is it kind of an out-of-body experience you know what it is because when i was reading that book like proofreading it and you really get it really draws you in and i'm like wow who did this this person been through a lot and i was like holy crap that's me <laughs> i mean you know alone at 16 it says you were determined to make a better life for your children but with no job skills and an eighth grade education your options were limited the thing that's heartbreaking about me when i read about it is you say that uh, so many, so many African American women like you suffer, but suffer in anonymity. Uh, they're they're just in the background. We know theoretically that this happens in droves. That the combination of of racism and systemic and chronic poverty, uh, especially in the South, is a fact of life in 2017 America. Um, but you rarely see a face put to one of these stories. You know, and that's why um, when I met Janine, she wanted to tell the story. She's, you know, one of the things she said, she was like, you hear about the young black man coming out of the uh, inner city or the ghetto or poverty, but rarely do you hear the story of a young black woman. And 
I never thought my story was interesting. Honestly, to be to be honest with you, I thought this happened. I thought it was a norm. And when once I became a comic and I started to tell my story, people was like, "Oh my God, you survived!" And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> it was it was shocking to me that they thought it was interesting because I thought everybody lived like that. But the thing is, you would watch Leave It to Beaver. It says that in your childhood, like, "Hell, I'm not going to watch Good Times and suffer with other black people on TV. If I'm going to if I'm going to watch TV, it better be aspirational." You knew that this was more than a fantasy; that this existed in kind of mainstream U.S. cultural life. Well, I was a kid with Leave It to Beaver, and I, I was drawn to that show because that's the mom that I wanted to have. You know, I wasn't I wasn't old enough to put together, you know, the sit. You know, when you poor, you don't know you poor until you grow up. You're like, damn, I was poor. Really, honestly, you don't, especially back in those days. I mean, I was drawn to Leave It to Beaver because I wanted that type of mama to feed me and to take care of me. And to ask me questions, like when Beaver was sitting at the table doing his homework, I never got asked that. And your your mother's whipping you with like an extension cord and saying you're ugly and you never had anything to eat. Well, not on a regular basis, you know, not probably like you had it, but, you know, it was always scraps here and there. So it it was a really rough time. Yeah. You know, most most kids from the from that 70 and 80 eras got hit with a stitching cord. (laughs) Gosh, so. Here's the deal is that everybody kind of you you hear stuff about equal opportunity and equality of outcome and everything like that. But there's no possible way you could be expected to focus on your school if you can't take breakfast for granted, if you can't take parental stability for granted, if you don't know the character of the boyfriend your mom is bringing home. Um, When did that all dawn on you? Well, um, I think it kind of dawned on me when I went to jail you know, the situation that I was in and the type of mom that I was becoming. And that was the only time my life was at a standstill. My life moved so fast. I mean, from hustling to scheming to, you know, just surviving to eat. And then I had two kids by the time I was 15. My life was, my mind was always going, what's the next step? How do I survive? So when I did that year in jail, that's when life slowed down and I realized that I was handed my kids what I was handed. So for our listeners who have yet to read the book yet, and I'm hoping they pick it up after they hear the show, uh, tell us how you got to jail. How, tell us how things devolved for you. I mean, from the time of, of uh, you know, it I, I, I just breaks my heart what you had to go through as an eight-year-old um, and the things that people don't even experience as 20-year-olds or never experience in their lives. I mean, the, the childhood that you were deprived of and that time that you actually got to go to jail and, and had to make some terrible choices. Well, I mean, to back the story up some, you know, I had, uh, I dropped out of school in eighth grade cause I got pregnant. It was no middle school back then. So I got pregnant. I was uh, 13 and I got pregnant by a 21, 22 year old married man. And, um, I ended up having another kid by this guy and he started to sell drugs in the early, the late eighties, like everybody else in the community, either you use it or you sell it. And so he would provide a place for me and the kids to live. And once he went to jail, I had to find something to do, but I'm, I'm 16 with two kids. I couldn't really get a job to support three people. So I turned to the thing that I saw him do and I started selling crack mm. and Eventually, like everybody else, you go to jail, and I ended up doing a year in jail for for selling drugs. And that's when my life became, that's when I was able to look around at my life and say, 
I had no idea. You know, sometimes my life was moving so fast. So I will forget how old I was. People thought I was an ad- a grown ass woman and I was a kid. <laughs> mm. On the subject of crack, I was wondering, you know, I've covered my book is about uh cocaine and Miami. And cocaine is kind of initially in the in the mid 70s a high class thing. It was like the champagne of drugs. There's a 1975 feature story in Playboy magazine that says this is like a wonder drug. But what was always kind of left as a footnote to me is when a cocaine kingpin would place kilos. Some of that kilo would get processed. The dregs of it would end up in a place like Overtown or Liberty City, Miami, or Gary, Indiana, or obviously South Central LA. And Let's that just was, say the black communities. Well, I mean, it was the worst. It was like it was you know the worst kinds of hot dogs that Oscar Mayer doesn't want to sell to anybody. They saved for the black community. And was there a compunction? Were you feeling guilty having seen what your mom went through in substance abuse and everybody else in the community about crack specifically, the, no. the highly addictive, highly destructive distillate of cocaine downstream? I mean, I'm a 16-year-old kid trying to trying to survive. I'm not worrying about who addicted to it, how bad this drug is and how it's messing up my community. I'm trying to feed two kids with no education. I mean, my focus is how is me, how are me and these two kids going to survive? So I didn't realize I was messing up the community. All I was trying to do was survive. I wasn't trying to become Pablo Escobar. I was just trying to give my kids what I didn't have. I see. And now, what were the economics of crack cocaine specifically? I mean, by the late 80s. We, we hear anecdotally that the price of cocaine was collapsing across the country because the, the cartels in Colombia kept flooding America with it. And as the price was collapsing, more and more of it would get processed into freebase, into crack, and end up in, in the poorest communities. How did it work for you? Like, when did you first learn of the prop the, the proposition of doing it? I mean, the book starts with your grandpa as a moonshiner, as a, a real entrepreneurial presence in the family. Um, you know, serving a serving a need and doing it doing it right. <laughs> I mean, you know, had cash in his sock and had the thirty eights going on, and didn't take crap from anybody. And that may have been the first you know, entrepreneurial inspiration of your life. So how, how did the numbers work out with crack cocaine? I made a lot of money. I mean, I'm here I am 16 and I had a friend in the book and we call him Doug. And we had a spot that actually brought in about $10,000 a day sometime. So I had a lot of money. I remember making my first thousand dollars and I thought I was rich. So, I mean, here I am. I had everything. I had everything that I, that I thought I ever wanted in life. I had a nice place. I had a couple of cars. My kids was in school. And I was just living the life. I was doing what anybody, everybody else was doing who was making crack money. Shopping, partying, and thank, and thought that I was living good. There was no twinge of kind of this is wrong money. No, it wasn't. Because you thought... You saw everybody in the community doing it. So you, I mean, you didn't think about, you know, the person who was buying the crack or you didn't think about, you know, later on as I got a little older, I did, but not in the beginning. No. Let me ask you, what do you think about the movie New Jack City? Dang, that's a long time ago. That was pretty real. (laughs) Wesley Snipes. I mean, was that an exaggeration? I'm thinking what Pookie, Pookie and uh, Chris Rock. Nah, that was that. It went down like that in some community. That was more like projects, projects. You know, well, what drug dealers and projects. I was in a community, mm-hmm. a community that I grew up in. So you know, we wasn't killing each other like they was doing in the projects. 
So New Jack City was pretty on. It was pretty. It was pretty close to reality. Tell me about your arrest. Tell me about uh, jail. Tell me about how that felt. I know you said earlier you were thinking about the next hustle and moving on. And how do you get past that? Um, when I, like I said, when I went to jail, I ended up getting a year. And um, but that, what was that first day like? Processing, going in. I mean, because you're well, very young. I mean, I imagine you. You know, you say in the book you're getting sized up. <laughs> well, you got to remember, I had been to jail before that. You know, mm-hmm. I'd been to jail for fighting with my kid's father, gambling, but I had never been sentenced before. You know, you when you got money, you go to jail and you make bun and, you know, y'all fight, y'all drop charges. That's back when you could drop charges. When I got sentenced to a year, that shit kicked me in my chest like a, a, a brick. Because the first thing I could think of, like, wow. You know, I'm going to miss my keep my daughter going to school. That was the most hurtful thing for me and that I could never get back. I miss walking her to her kindergarten class and it tore our relationship up. Wow. And you're how old at this time? Me now? No, when your daughter was in kindergarten, you were in jail for a year. Uh, what was I? My I'm, I'm 14 years older than my daughter. So uh, you were almost 20. Yeah. I was like 17, wasn't I? That's right. 18. That's right. About 18. And I missed her going to kindergarten. And, you know, for a long time, she kind of, she would not talk to me because I sold drugs in front of her school. And, you know, it was crazy because at the time they was teaching the dare program, stay away from drugs, don't use drugs, don't sell drugs. But you got your mother in front of your school selling drugs. And this is before the no drug school signs went up. So I mean, my daughter could literally look at her wonder and see me standing on the corner selling drugs. And I'll never forget when she came to me, she kindergarten or first grade, probably first grade. And she's like, mama, I said, yes. She said, uh, I get tired of looking at my school wonders and seeing you standing on the corner selling drugs. And I was so young and ignorant. I said, well, what you want me to do? I was here first. You want me to find you another school? <laughs> I mean, it's it's something you can laugh at now, but, you know, from the mouths of babes. And I, I, I think I turn it around and how when you were eight years old, your teacher told you to believe in yourself. Kind of the most poignant quote in the book is that you thought you had a guardian angel. And here you have your child in kindergarten turning around and trying to trying to kind of get you woke. Yeah. And she would always say stuff like you should you shouldn't sell drugs. And I remember being in a crack house. Well, well, we was a crack house and um, we was gambling and my daughter was sitting in the crack house with my son and um, they started shooting because we were shooting craps. They literally started shooting in this house and my daughter ran out that house so fast and we could hardly catch her. And when we finally caught up to her, she said, they're going to kill us. Um, they're going to kill us. Stop bringing me down. They're going to kill us. And when I would literally ride down that street where I sold drugs, she's like, why are we over here? They're going to kill us. And that's all she ever talked about until the day I stopped selling drugs. Hmm. We are talking to Miss Pat. That's Patricia Williams, a comedian who was born and raised in Atlanta at the height of the crack epidemic. Um, I really loved your book, Rabbit. Uh, the autobiography of Ms. Pat. And, you know, just to give an idea of how much your childhood was kind of compressed or robbed of you, it said, one of five children you watched as your mother struggled to get by on charity cons and petty crimes. At age seven, you were taught to roll drunks for money. At 12, you were targeted for sex by a man eight years your senior. By 13, you were pregnant. By 15, you were a mother of two. Now, I was struck in reading this and in your story about your daughter trying to to talk sense from to you as a kindergartner is 
you were terribly embarrassed of, of, of your mother kind of in her drunken stupor making a scene in front of your house as a child. You're like, I'd rather go hungry than have her take out that charcoal grill and make a scene and have the fire department show up and everybody <laughs> in the neighborhood know what my status is. I mean, I mean, these things really run in cycles. You know, It's like what your mother did to you versus did you step out of side of your body and say, gosh, I'm doing this to my girl as well? Well, <laughs> I don't think my kids have been that poor, but... Um... But the humiliation of it. I mean, your daughter is saying that, you know, it's you're not fooling anybody. You guys are standing outside and I mean, you're, you're turning my school into a, a drug alley and you're kind of like none of your business. Move. I'll move you to another school. But, you know, to grow up like I did, you have to. And that's what I realized later on in life that I was stuck in a cycle. I was stuck in a cycle of abuse, alcoholic dropouts, you know, just all all the worst you can think of a family. I was in that cycle and in teenage pregnancy. My mama had me. My, I was my mama's last child, and I think she was 21 years old, and I was a sixth child. So I, once I realized it was a cycle, I was like, well, how do I get off of this? How do I get off of this train that ain't going nowhere? And that but was what, why I was what in I, jail. What I'm trying to get at is what was the turning point in that? What was the one moment? What was the revelation, the epiphany? Like, you know what? This is not inevitable. I can really turn it around. I met a man. <laughs> I met a, I always tell people I met a black man with back teeth and um, I met a, I met a really great guy, you know, who, who was willing to take me as I am or was. And I learned a lot from this man. You know, he never judged that I was a drug dealer. He just constantly said, you know, you can do something like get a job, but I had never really seen anybody around me get a job before. And I learned so much about life from this guy, finances, you know, how to be a lady, how not to commit crimes and, you know, how do you, how you hurt people when you commit crimes. I learned a lot. I met, a, I met a man in my life that was willing to take on me with two kids. But I, I, you know, how were you not skeptical of older men? It sounds, it sounds crass of me to ask, but you were done so wrong so many times my um, husband is only two years older than me. Right. But men in general, men in general coming into your lives and men who trusted you. I mean, the, 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 it wasn't, I tell you this, it wasn't easy. I was in a very abusive relationship. You got to remember, I met this man when I was 12. I got pregnant at 13, gave birth at 14. But even what happened, Miss Pat, what happened to you earlier, which was, you know, in chapter five in the book, which just ripped my heart out. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, you know, to, to to have somebody's childhood, like it says that as as you're being molested, you just imagine yourself flying away. Um, for a person's childhood to be kind of robbed from her continuously, like any chance of your childhood coming back, if it wasn't poverty, if it wasn't the school system, if it wasn't violence, if it wasn't hunger, then finally a, a, a man who your family trusted, who brought you groceries and everything. Yeah. I just, I would have, I, I don't understand trust after that. Um, you know what it is? I don't dwell. You know, I, 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 I don't know where I got that from. You know, I'm not a big Christian. I mean, I don't go to church all the time. I truly believe that there's a higher power. I do believe in God, but I don't dwell. I don't know how to hold grudges. If I don't have control over my, I've always taught myself, just keep it moving. Just keep it moving. That's why it took me over 30 years to ever tell that story about chapter five. I can't dwell over what I can't, what I don't have control over. Me hating somebody ain't going, ain't going to give me back my childhood. 
When you hate, hate will create cancer in the body, whether it's physical or emotionally. And to me, to keep a normal mind, I just had to keep it moving. Now, I have a sister that's on crack to this day, and I believe she smoked drugs to keep from thinking about what we went through in our childhood. I think that's her comfort zone. For me, was it just locking it in the closet and moving on, not talking about it. And I do wonder when people talk flip in a flip way about the crack epidemic, if it was kind of a forerunner to the opioid crisis, I wonder if it was just so much of the country self-medicating out of misery. Um, it's just a way to, 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 to escape um, in your head, even if you're in the worst environment in the world, even if you traded sex for it, that it gets you out of your body, out of your mind for a few precious minutes and then you want another fix. I mean, probably do. I mean, I, honestly, I think that's why my drugs, I mean, my sister's on drugs to this day. People use all, t people use different methods to deal with their pain. For me, it was just, just never, just all, when I wanted to think about it, I would just go hustle, just go hustle. I would go for checks. I would go, go shopping, go do this. Now, you know, before I became a comedian, I've always made people laugh. So now with all of this stuff that I've talked about in my book, it's so open now. It's, comedy was a healing process. The more I talk about it, the more I feel healed. Just by it, telling. What telling is it? What is about. it about funny people? This is a cliche question to ask, but I gotta ask: What is it about funny people and and misery and depression? I mean, you think about Robin Williams. You think about Richard Jenny. Um, you know, the, Richard the, Pryor. Richard Pryor. You think about the whole, um, you know, the sad clown aspect of it, shadow and persona. Uh, what is it? What is it there? Some of the funniest people in the world are tormented so privately. I mean, Richard Lewis on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, I mean, his battle with substance abuse and depression. Um, what is it about making the world laugh? Um, I don't know for them, but probably for me, because there were so many times I couldn't laugh. <laughs> this stuff ain't always been funny. And, I, and that's one of the things I say on stage. I say, when you can laugh at the bull crap you've been through in your life, then you have control over it. I'm 45 years old, and this is the first time I ever had control of my life. Tell us about that first time on the stage when you were convinced that, hey, you know what? You're actually a funny person. This is not just about cashing checks and being a mother and, and you know walking through the daily slog of life. You actually have something that's that people will pay for. The first time I got, I got encouraged by a welfare worker. Yeah, that's that, that's when, what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, when I went through the welfare to work program doing Bill Clinton term, and I would go in and try to scheme her and tell all these horrible stories, and you know, thinking we're gonna cry together so she don't force me to go get a job. And she just said, she said, you know, you you're really funny. It was a black lady. It always worked on the white women, but when I ran into this one black lady, I couldn't get over on her ass for nothing. And she said, um, you're really funny. You should really look into doing stand-up comedy. I don't want a job. I came here to get more free stuff. And she was like, no, you should really look into it. And she kept bugging me. And I went and got on stage. And when I got on stage that night, and I was like, wait a minute. They're not going to check my criminal background history. They're just going to give me a mic and let me talk. And I was like, I can do this. And here I am 15 years later. Well, my mother wasn't the type of parent that did a lot of whooping because she was a very small lady and she had five kids that was a lot bigger than her. So my mama walked around every day, y'all, with a 22 pistol and used to threaten the hell out of us. <laughs> One day I forgot to wash dishes. She busted my room like a sniper. Papa, bitches, didn't I tell y'all to wash them dishes? 
I'm thinking like, we poor as hell. Where she keep getting all these bullets from? <laughs> I'm reading from your book. It says, it turns out comedy and selling drugs have a lot in common. You need to be quick, work hard, and give people what they want. But to make it in comedy, you also need a break. Back in the day, a comic could go on The Tonight Show and their career would take off overnight. But the industry changed. By the 2010s, it was all about podcasts. Every comic had one and everyone wanted to be a guest. Except me. I didn't know shit about podcasting. <laughs> Until you say about four or five years ago when the comedian Eddie Ift was looking for a guest. And, you know, you got the referral that you were recommended from a friend in Indianapolis. I mean, how did that how did that go? He he was like, yo, he was like, um, <laughs> the friend was like, yo, uh, this guy wants you to do a podcast. And I told him he's looking for somebody with a very interesting life. So I said, what the hell is a podcast? He's like, you know, it's like a radio show. You know, We, they just we do still it don't know what the hell a podcast is, by the way. It's 2017, but go ahead. <laughs> and um, so I called up Eddie. And he was like, yo, you in California? And a podcast was just beginning to really take off. And I was like, I'll come out there to you. So I went out there and did the podcast. And I was like, oh, this, this thing is okay. And the next thing I know, I gained so many fans and so many people started to recommend me. And I was like, wait a minute, this podcast stuff is for real, isn't it? And it was like it was like my Johnny Carson. I ended up all the way to Mark Marin. And that's you know, Mark Marin is like the biggest you can get. So is, that, is, that, is that his garage in, in like northern uh, LA? Did he have you there? Yeah, that's I've been there twice. What is that like? That's like in the guy's house? It's like, you know what? <laughs> Yeah, it's in his, it's in it's literally in his garage, and you just sitting there chilling and having. A By the way, I, I'm doing this in my bathrobe, and I haven't brushed my teeth or anything yet. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you sitting there, you talking to Mark Maron, and you know what? I didn't even know who Mark Maron was. Now, I, I was familiar with Joe Rogan, but I had no clue who Mark Maron was. I didn't know he was famous. I didn't know what he had done because I don't ever look up anybody. I just go and have a conversation. Yeah, it's clearly because you're slumming it by coming on my show. Robin Farzad, full disclosure. Yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't look at, I just say, hey, he's shopping at Walmart like I do. And I did Mark Marin podcast and left and sold him. I mean, ended up, that's how my book got sold at HarperCollins. Then you were heard on Mark Marin and then you got an unsolicited offer for the book. Yes. Yes. Life he is released crazy. It. He really, it, you know, most people, everybody always say, how did you sell a book? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so you're like, you're going to pay me to write stories down about my uneventful life. Do I get that straight? And uh, Yeah, because I was like, I tell these stories all the time for free. And they was like, uh, no, we want to write a book. And it's, the book is actually doing well. It's just got nominated for an NAACP Image Award. This little book would not stop. It just keep on giving. It does give. And, you know, Mark Maron's on the back. It says, early praise for Rabbit. Amazing stories of perseverance, survival, and transcendence. Transcendence. Mind-blowing. Mark Maron. And Mark Maron, by the way, has had Barack Obama on his show. I mean, that's a guy. That's like one of the, one of the five kings of podcasting. He can get anybody to show up. But it's another tormented comedian. And uh, people go back and listen to his fateful interview with the late Robin Williams, and they're sharing, you know, not just you know side-splitting humor, but stories of of devastating uh, abuse and doubt. And it's amazing how those two swim in the same pool. Yeah, because I didn't know Mark Marion had been through so much. Like he was an alcoholic. He had been, you know, his career was on a down spiral, and all of a sudden he came back up. And he is, I don't know if you've ever seen him live, but he is hilarious. 
it's very hard humor for me to digest because the man looks so miserable. I watched that show. What was it on IFC? You know, and he has issues with his mother and everything. But then, you know, there's a lot of stuff like you could watch Curb Your Enthusiasm and get shades of that. Clearly, you know, Louis C.K. until his career was felled recently would wear a lot of that on his sleeve. Um, it's just very – there's this demand for really, really, really real and candid humor. And and the direct connection between you and the world is, you know, your Twitter following. I mean, people see you. They see your book events if you're showing up. W- what has that been like? I mean, people accost you at a book signing. What kind of things have they been telling you? Like what kind of things have they been sharing? Oh, they, you know, a lot of them is like, oh my God, a lot of these books I can relate to, or I've been through it. And it's, what's shocking to me is for, is for people all walks of life. You know, I'm black. I'm thinking just, this is a black American thing. No, what I've been through in life, believe it or not, it goes, it goes on every scale. People just don't talk about it. I never forget when I was in Chicago and I performed and one night, this white lady came up to me and she was like, uh, I want to tell you I had my baby at 14 or 15, something like that. And I looked at her and I was like, what? And her husband had on an ascot. And I was like, not your rich ass. <laughs> but, and, you know, she whispered in my ear that how she had been molested. She was thanking me for telling the story. She was like, I wish I could tell my story. And it was so crazy because, honestly, I thought only black America went through this. And that's when I started to realize this is a universal story. It doesn't matter how much money you got or what color you is. A lot of stuff that I talk about, people can relate to certain parts of my life. It happened to them or it happened to somebody that they know. Mm. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Patricia, Ms. Pat Williams, author of Rabbit, the hot-selling autobiography of Ms. Pat, uh, which Kirkus Reviews said it's both savagely honest and often genuinely funny. This is the story of how a resilient woman survived a harrowing early life and found unexpected salvation through humor. I want to get your thoughts uh, in the few minutes we have left with you on the Me Too movement. I mean, this has been spreading like, you know, a metaphorical wildfire across the country uh, as women step forward. I mean, this morning, Megyn Kelly had three of Donald Trump's 16 accusers on the show. I mean, there's a there's a reassessment of what Anita Hill said back in the early 90s. Uh, there are people in Hollywood that are dropping like flies because women who've been living in silence and shame for the longest time have finally stepped forward to share their stories. And I'm thinking about what you said about this, this, you know, prosperous looking white woman accosting you at a signing and saying that she too was molested. She too was raped. Uh, is there, is there kind of a moment, do you, do you feel a true solidarity with all women? Yes. Because I still feel like the story, the story of the, the ubiquitous nature of abuse in the African-American communities, not being told by and large. You know what? The Me Too Too movement is, oh, my God, I'm so happy because, you know, and it makes me mad when I see people on social media saying, well, why would people wait 30 years? I waited almost 35 years to tell the story of my mama boyfriend. And let me tell you something. When you can get that out, when you can say that openly and not be ashamed, it's like freeing yourself. When I got ready to when I got ready to tell her this story, I started shaking. And I'm a I'm a tough person. I whoop your ass. <laughs> you know, don't too much scare me. But me openly saying what my mama boyfriend did to me and so many others that didn't even make the book, it freed me because that's a story that I could never find the funny in and that I never talked about. I've been married a long time and my husband did not he, he had never heard that story. So I know exactly what those women going through. And every time they come out, I say at home, at my TV, 
Go on, girl. Free yourself. Free yourself. Because that's something that's, that don't have to eat at you anymore on the inside. That's something that you don't have to be ashamed of anymore. That's something that you realize was not your fault. I actually thought that what my mama boyfriend did to me was my fault. And if I ever opened my mouth, we, was, we wasn't going to have a place to live. We wasn't going to be able to eat on a regular basis anymore. I sold my soul for something that I, I should have spoke up years ago for. But I was too scared. Who the hell was going to believe me? She didn't believe me before. Why would she believe me with a man she in love with? So I know how those women feel. And I'm so happy for each and every one of them that is brave enough to come forward to say, I will not keep this secret anymore. And I don't give a damn who fall behind it. Ms. Pat, That's how I feel. Miss Pat, is your, is your mother's boyfriend still alive? Nope, he did. And so is she. And so I don't understand the path of forgiveness. You're saying that it, it's only going to hurt you at this point to hold on to it. Um, but, you know, and, and especially talk about forgiveness. I'd love to understand your relationship with your first child, how it was able to mend, how you, you, you've been able to put it back together after your time in prison and in your moment of, of introspection and the very public you today. You know, I, when, my first, when I had two kids, my first two kids, I'd tell them, you know, I had to go back and tell them, I said, I want y'all to know that I was only 15 and 16 with you guys. I had no clue what the hell I was doing. I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things wrong. And I went to them and I asked them to forgive me. Now, my son don't remember a lot of it, but my daughter do. And I told her, I was like, I was a kid. I sh you shouldn't even be here. But I kept you and I did the best that I could do. And I made a lot of mistakes and I asked her to forgive me. And, you know, most people, most most parents are proud of their kids. But I got to tell you, my kids are proud of me and they tell me all the time. And nobody's never been proud of me. But my kids tell me all the time how proud they are for the changes that I made in my life. You know, my son just recently read my book. And he heard similar, you know, little stories, but not like the ones in the book. And he called me last week and he said, I just want to thank you for changing your life to keep us from going through what you went through. And dude, I could not stop crying because my son don't read shit. <laughs> he read my book. <laughs> and, it, you know, he's like, I had no clue, mama. He said, now I know why you so hard on us. Now I know why you always telling us certain things. I tell him, I told my son, I said, you would not become what society think black men are. I've been in the streets. I've been to the bottom. I don't want you to ever see the bottom. So, you know, I just had to go to him and I told him, I said, I was a horrible mother. And I was, I was a horrible mother. And I'm not, I'm not making excuses because I was 16. I didn't know what I was doing, but I asked for forgiveness. Miss Pat, what's coming up for you this year? Next year, 2018. We're already up at 2018. You talk about the NAACP Award coming up. Will you tell us about that? Yeah, um, the book got nominated for NAACP Image Award, which shocked the devil out of me because I was blown away. I was like, oh, you guys serious? Am I being pumped? But um, I'm going to that this week, this Saturday. I'm going to the luncheon, and, and in January, I'm going to the award show. After that, I'm still working on a pilot for Fox, hopefully – you know, they like what we're doing and it'll get picked up to get shot. Who knows? 
um, working on a one-woman show and just trying to get some other things going in my career. And can you make a living off of stand-up comedy right now? I mean, do people pay to come and see you or do they pay for like a Netflix series or something like that? Or is it still go out there for the exposure and try to sell a book? Oh, no. I'm uh, uh, No, you got to pay me. I'm old. I just got custody of my my niece, four kids. You know, my, my youngest is 16. I got four new crack babies at the house. I got to be paid. I, I'm, I'm, I'm past exposure. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for giving our show the exposure. I am so grateful. Man, I've been on you for weeks, and we finally snagged you. Your, your schedule is so busy. I do want to close it with one of the closing lines of your book, not to give it all away, but people ask me all the time, you, you write, how I turned my life around. I used to think it was too complicated to answer without telling my whole life story, but now that I've laid it all out in black and white, I realize the answer is really pretty simple. I wanted to turn my life around, and what got me there was love. Thank you so much, Ms. Pat. I am so grateful, and I urge everybody to pick up the book, uh, Rabbit. It is flying off the shelves. It's It's been universally revered. I, I guarantee you it's going to be adapted into something, and I can't wait to shake your hand. Well, thank you. I look forward to meeting you next time I come your way. Patricia Williams, author of Rabbit, the autobiography of Miss Pat. She's gonna. Are you on tour? Where are you showing up next? Uh, I'm headed to Dayton, Ohio, uh, the 21st through the 23rd. And then I'm Sacramento and San Francisco after that. But if I, if I hook up a stand-up gig in Central Virginia, will you do it? Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> You're on the spot, Miss Pat. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We are on NPR One. Catch us, love us there. We are on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. On the Twitters at FullDRadio, though not nearly as many followers as Miss Pat. She's huge. Uh, Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. I am all over. Not internationally known, not quite known to rock the microphone, but I'm Robin Farzad, and I'll be with you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.